1: This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more.
0: Hey friends, welcome back to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank you for tuning in to the best rare disease podcast of all time. I appreciate you so much. If you're new here, Definitely go check out the back catalog. If you have any questions, if you want me to cover any topics, please get in touch with me and keep me posted. I have been getting lots of messages, have been in there with you. I can tell everyone has been very uh, frayed along the edges for the last several weeks. Uh, hang in there. I have a super cool guest today. He's the CEO of La Jolla Labs, which is a cutting edge RNA therapeutics company that's developing personalized therapeutics for ultra rare patients. It's built by industry leaders, and the La Jolla Labs drug discovery pipeline combines AI, next generation sequencing, and RNA biology to, to generate therapeutics faster than anyone in the world. And as a result, La Jolla Lab has over 70 patients in their discovery pipeline. So we're talking today to the CEO again, and he's gonna provide a vision for how therapeutics will be generated in the future. And he's also gonna highlight the speed bumps that are in place today please enjoy my conversation with Jeff Milton. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, this is the podcast where I talk to people who are way smarter than me. I think that's going to be my new tagline. (laughs) I was introduced to you, sort of, by, I guess, one of your employers, but then I reached out to my homies, the Grossmans, because I know they're in your neighborhood. And I was like, who's this Jeff Milton guy? I guess I know his name because I've seen him on stuff with Susanna. But should I talk to him? And they were they said very nice things about you, Jeff. Oh, good. <laughs> but they did promise me a song. So I'm still going to probably try to get that in the future. But
1: Definitely, definitely. Yes, I'm i am working my way up to the uh, to point where I can perform live. I think I'm almost there. So we'll see.
0: I mean, you you have a career in rare disease if you do that, you know, even more so.
1: Yeah. Well, I do have one rare disease song. So we'll see. Maybe I'll put together a whole album. Oh, my gosh.
0: Record it. <laughs> we'll add it later. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jeff, uh, let's, let's hear about who you are and what you're doing in La Jolla and with your company.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I've been in... RNA therapeutics for about 15 years now, actually in a combination of bioinformatics and and RNA targeting therapeutics. So I come from the big corporate world. I worked at Genentech for several years in the bioinformatics department up in San Francisco and then moved to Ionis Pharmaceuticals where I ran the uh, screening technology group there so a lot of the software and working on the automation for for doing some of the early discovery in vitro discovery work and then we wrote a lot of software and tools to sort of help us do things like predict drugs and if they're going to work in, in certain um, at certain targets and and if they're going to be toxic in certain cases and that was kind of my role for for uh, many years and then during covid, I had the opportunity to join a company doing mRNA therapeutics, Arcturus uh, Therapeutics. And I was pretty excited about that because I just, I wanted to have that mRNA experience. And I left with a, so my, another person who was kind of the power user of the work I did at Ionis. uh, her name is Tamar Grossman, not related to your Grossman friend, maybe distantly related, but Tamar Grossman left to go to Arcturus to head up the rare disease program there. And so when I went over to Arcturus to head up data sciences there, I found that, you know, we started collaborating again and we worked on a lot of really cool projects. And, and Arcturus decided as they, at the time, they really wanted to focus on developing the full pipeline for their MRI vaccine. And that made sense. So, But they essentially deprioritized a lot of the work that we were doing. So we decided that was an opportunity for us. And both of us actually decided to start La Jolla Labs and we left. The problem was Tamar was basically being recruited by everybody in the world at the time. As soon as anyone found out she was leaving, they you know, she's, this is somebody who's got experience in every asp, every modality in RNA, and she's taken drugs from design all the way to the clinic. So she was really sought after by every large company and she ended up taking a position at head of RNA and targeted therapeutics at Johnson and Johnson. And she's now running that program. And in fact, she and she's only been there for a year or two. Yeah, a year and a half, and she's already been promoted. She's now head of gene therapy and a lot of uh, a lot of programs. So, uh, however, she's very much involved in in La Jolla Labs as a strategic uh, a scientific advisor and. And so, yeah. So I ended up taking on the role of CEO and and leading La Jolla Labs into funding and getting our seed funding and establishing our our relationship with uh, some collaborations we did with Enlorum and building our lab. And I'm actually out in our lab now. And We're in El Cajon. We have an office in La Jolla, so we can still call ourselves La Jolla Labs. But um, our primary lab is actually out in El Cajon. So we're La Jolla Labs of El Cajon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad Tamara didn't leave you in the dust. (laughs) Sounds like a valuable work bestie to have.
1: Yes, definitely. Yeah. Very, very important uh, connection to have for us.
0: Cool. So I know you worked at Ionis and you just mentioned Enlorem. I was wondering if you'd maybe talk about the partnership and what you do with them now.
1: Yeah, definitely. So EnLorum is founded by Stan Crook, who's the who is the founder of Ionis Pharmaceuticals. So when he found out that I was starting this lab and it was going to be focused on screening, he was definitely interested in in working directly with us and actually being co located. So I'm actually there, they they lease their our lab. They lease space from us in our lab, so they're actually embedded with us, and that's a big. What we're doing is basically all the from target um, to the uh, in vitro screening part of that. So essentially, what they have quite a few patients in their pipeline. Those patients, uh, they get their sequence, their genome sequenced. And that sequence comes to us at La Jolla Labs. We load it into our software and we do our designs. They also have their cells sent to our lab. So we have the patient fibroblasts. And then depending on how they do their screen, we either differentiate them into certain cell types and then do the screens, or we actually test the drugs in the cells themselves. And then we get what's what we call dose response leads. And those are a set of compounds that we then give back to end lorem and say, okay, these are ready to go to talk studies. So that's kind of the relationship we have there. And it's very similar. It was kind of a natural fit because it was basically stuff that we did at Ionis and we worked together at Ionis. And then I still feel like I'm I'm working for Ionis because <laughs> I work for Stan. But we're still kind of figuring out a lot of our relationship as well. So there's a lot of things that, you know, uh, how, how we're going to move forward. We're not, you know, not sure, but we're doing some of the, we're doing a lot of the uh, early discovery work at the moment. Yeah, so.
0: Yeah, no, that's really cool. What an exciting thing to be a part of. And it really says a lot, not only about you and about Ionis and about Stan and 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 the whole family there, about just keeping that relationship and the integrity of, you know, kind of what you're seeing together and, you know, partnering with that. It's very cool.
1: Right. And it's, it's, it, that's why I say it was kind of a natural fit because I understand the way he works. I understand the culture that he kind of cultivates in his organization is definitely something that I reflect in, in uh, what we're trying to do at La Jolla Labs. And, you know, we had principles that we followed at IONIS. Um, one of them was patients first. You know, if you have a, if you Come across a situation where you're not quite sure whether it's the right thing to do. Um, the the mantra was basically, think about the patients. Is that the right thing to do? And that's something that we reflect at at Loyal Labs, and we think about quite a bit. Um, you know, when it becomes a difficult decision, we reflect on, okay, let's think about the patients, and then we'll think about the uh, the income. Try to, you know, it's it's basically a bar that we have to have in order to. Um, that in order to make a profit, we have to have at least that bar to say, okay, uh, that's where our threshold is. We don't go below that. Thank you.
0: It seems like something that's so basic, right? But right. it's still not necessarily implemented more broadly. Right, so right. Thank right. you for that. Yeah. So you're basically a tech nerd and a scientist, and you have clients like Enlorem who else would Who else would reach out to La Jolla Labs um, to hire you, or collaborate with with you, or partnership with you? Like, what else are you involved in within the ra- within the rare disease community?
1: Yeah, so that's kind of the the what we are doing is essentially taking the lab that was locked behind the doors, of the big walls of pharmaceutical companies, and we're taking it and we're making it accessible to anybody in the world. So we work directly with foundations, we work with academic groups as well. And a lot of the programs we kind of I kind of think of us as in a sense like an incubator. If somebody comes with us with a target, comes to us with a target and it's a target that has a potential for broad applications, we'll take it on and we'll actually pay for it and we'll split the IP. But we'll also work under complete, you know, fee for service. So Basically, because it's just the in vitro leads, it's pretty relatively cheap for a lot of these. Like, it's within the budgets of several foundations, and a lot of these foundations are pretty small, but they have enough. You know, for the price of a car, essentially, you can own the IP of the drug that you want to move forward. It's if it's RNA targeting, and um, so that's that's kind of our uh, approach. And as we do this more and more, we're getting the cost down quite. A, we're getting the cost to kind of drop because we're becoming more and more efficient. Um, and so, hopefully, we'll be able to provide access for everybody to have uh, to sort of own the drug and move things forward. And and I like I look at this like the world that that we're in right now is is fascinating. We're transitioning from this information age to a knowledge age where people, parents, patient advocacy groups, they're becoming knowledgeable. They don't—they have access to all this information and they're becoming knowledgeable because number one, they're extremely motivated to understand some of the science and where those, um, and, and they can get to the front end or the limits of what scientific knowledge is in many ways related to their disease very quickly. And so when it comes to actually capturing the IP associated with their particular indication, uh, that's the most important, important part. And instead of going to a pharmaceutical company like Ionis <laughs> or you know Pfizer or whatever and saying, here's my target, this is what I want to do, this is the patient population, go and capture the IP first and then talk because a lot of times what ends up happening is these you know, they go and they present targets to companies, and then they're informed later that that IP is taken. and then they're then they're sort of they're behind the curve, basically. And so I encourage you know anybody who wants to work with La Jolla Labs, if they have,, um, you know, one of the things we have we require is they have to have a scientific liaison and many of these foundations have scientific boards. And if they have that, then we'll work with you and we'll um, we'll get you at least that first sort of ownership so that you can then have more control as you go into partnering with pharmaceutical companies for preclinical studies and things like that, which is really where you do need to partner. But that first component, that part that actually defines what that molecule is, that's the part that we're trying to open to the world and to allow people to have access to without having to before they actually go to partnering
0: this is so interesting i love that it's i look at it like you're you're sort of opening this iron curtain and Providing access and helping to make things cheaper, which is ripe for patient advocacy groups to get involved when they can. Can you speak a little bit more about this rare disease movement and these highly motivated groups and families and how they're taking control of drug discovery?
1: Yeah, I I definitely can. I've 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 talked to so many parents and foundation leaders. I've talked to lawyers who understand the genetics of their child at a very detailed level and understand, you know, the targets that they want to go after. I've talked to computer science, you know, entrepreneurs who've decided they're going to change to, they're going to start a foundation or not a foundation, but a company around their particular drug. Talked to many of these. And this is the thing is that that because the data is accessible and because they they have access to not just data they have access to knowledge and people that allow them to kind of go out there and and they're extremely motivated to understand this stuff more so than in many cases a a a phd student who's kind of going through the rigor of uh, their classes or whatever these are people who are extremely emotionally attached to their uh cause and so they learn very quickly and and so what we're doing is we're basically providing that first step, that door for them to say, okay, here's my target. What can you do about it? And then we look at the targets and, we, and, and then uh, give them many cases, several options. They go and they research that op- those options. They talk to their scientific liaisons and they come back to us and say, this is great. We'd like to do it. We'd like to go forward with this target in this particular way. How do we take it to the next step but yeah the movement itself is is pretty amazing and i think as the prices as the cost of doing discovery goes down you're going to see more and more people who are taking control of this of this situation but I can't tell you how many people I talk to who are saying you're basically starting companies and they're transitioning to from whatever their day job is to, to a pharmaceutical company. And they can because they can access tools like Loyal Labs to do their screening and the sequencing data is all online and all that. You can basically have a virtual pharmaceutical company of any... Kind that you want at this point
0: yeah I mean you're right it's like this circle right like they're they are creating companies and it's feeding each other right it's feeding the foundation it's feeding the company and making it all much so much more robust and I love that you mentioned like how many just random people and like where they come from their career paths are so well educated and so well informed and in this aspect and you almost have to be right like
1: yeah and like I said the motivation is there these are people who are extremely motivated to understand it So they look for the knowledge experts out there and they have conversations and the conversations are really where you, you, and they go to these conferences and it's really talking to people where you learn so much and, and they understand the fundamentals of biology. If they understand the fundamentals of like things like the central dogma, then they can, that's really, that's the platform they work off of. And then they go into the, the specifics of what they're, what they're dealing with. And so, uh, and then they kind of figure out the modalities, you know, okay, it's a tissue specific thing and maybe it's not amenable to an antisense strategy. So they'll look for small molecules. I mean, these are people who are, who can find this stuff out pretty quickly through their, uh, through their networks.
0: Are you mainly talking to patient advocacy groups who have a lot of money?
1: No. uh, Most of the patient advocacy groups that we talk to do not. In fact... Most people, uh, most of the groups that I talk to come to me and they use the information we give about their target. So basically, we'll take for free, we'll basically take their target and their disease or their indication and kind of design a plan for them that is RNA based since we're RNA targeting. And in several cases, they'll take it and they'll actually build a proposal around it. In fact, we've probably got about 10 companies and academic groups and foundations that are actually using us just to build proposals. And that's why I say we're kind of like an incubator because we build, we we take the targets, we have a bunch of models, That we apply so we we have a a splicing model it's very similar to if you're familiar with spinal muscular atrophy there's a drug that is a splicing modulator that actually makes that drug work well we have a a model that we've generated using machine learning that helps us to predict splicing and build screens around splicing so if you have if you want to do an rna editing type drug we have a model to do that. So people give us the target. We take our splicing algorithm and generate potential uh strategies for them, and then we'll give it back to them. And then they'll use that to either raise money to then come back to us and actually do the screen, or in a couple instances, we'll actually, because the target we recognize that there is a, a broader application of the target. We'll actually take it on, and we'll say, "Hey, we'll. Why don't we split this one? And we'll just go ahead and fund it, and we'll do the screen here, and and then we'll just we'll just uh, we'll work together. So that's that's why I say we're kind of like an incubator when it comes to targets, because we assess those models, and for some of them, we'll take on.
0: That's super cool. So you're helping to design these roadmaps, but then you're also helping to carry them through with different opportunities. Yeah. Interesting. What is one of the most valuable things that a patient advocacy group can bring to you or perhaps maybe what are some things patient advocacy groups should think about tweaking or doing more of to help iron out things and help streamline their goals when they're coming to you?
1: Well, if they come to us with data, like sequencing data, then that really helps. And if they understand, so a lot of these cases are, uh, for instance, their, their loss of function, and there's a lot of different mutations for a particular indication. And so it may not be a situation where it can be, it's not a knockdown situation. It's it's kind of like, a, it could be a splicing situation. But understanding the scope of the mutations is super important. And understanding, and if they have somebody who understands a, a way to connect us to an expert in the field. We do that, we have a lot of, a pretty big network of experts, but but for uh, a lot of patient advocacy groups, they have, they're working with academics. And a lot of times those academics, if they bring the academics with us, that can help uh, facilitate the communication because we'll have a bunch of questions up front about the target and and where, what, what are the options before we actually apply our models to them. So we need... So to be able to have a, a a very targeted conversation with somebody who has a, a vast background on the uh, diseases is very helpful. Have
0: you found that partnership with the academics who come in to be really collaborative?
1: Very, very collaborative. A lot of a lot of them have been, I mean, the academics we have worked with have been just fantastic. I mean, just really, really. I think they're kind of relieved um and because <laughs> because we're we're kind of uh we're not a uh we're not an imposing force i mean in the sense that you know we're they have options and they're in control all the way through the process whereas I think they feel like when they go into the walls of a pharmaceutical company they're guarded and they're they're sort of nervous about how they approach it because i've heard this story many times where they actually go in they talk to a pharmaceutical company and they're actually informed later that they have the pharmaceutical company has as filed for a patent around their their drug that's actually happened and it and it's also happened in the k in case and there's there are cases now today where a rare disease is just completely locked up and not going into the clinic a, a drug that's actually ready for the clinic has been approved for the clinic, but not going into the clinic because of financial reasons. And it's completely out of the control of the patient advocacy advocacy groups and the uh, academics who are involved in that. And you have to think about all the, the volunteer work that went to pushing the, that drug down that pipeline to get it to the point where it could actually go into the clinic and it fails because nobody the only person who's in control the only organization in control is the big company and so that's the model we need to undo here we need to get that so that it's the people who are who are invested in this the most and that's why we think patients first you know they're the ones who need to be the ones who have control over the pushing the drug forward and that's why early discovery ip is super important
0: Thank you so much for making a point of that. Ugh, it makes me sick. It's so criminal and devastating and heartbreaking for families. And you're right; it absolutely needs to be corrupted in the best sense of the word. You mentioned earlier about the splicing and the AI. Can you? I heard a story that you told about scurvy. I don't know if it has anything to do with what we're sort of talking <laughs> about, but it was amazing. Especially, really loved all the puns. But how does artificial intelligence play such a such an important role? And how is it helping to drive? rare disease.
1: Yeah, I think that artificial intelligence is going to be a very powerful thing. Now, the one thing I will say is that the access to data is the key to driving artificial intelligence. And people always sort of, you know, there was a, a period of time there where all you had to do was you, you start a company and you say, I'm doing artificial intelligence for disease and, there, and you'd get funded. The, the problem with that is that it takes a lot of data. And it has to be very structured data. So the idea of applying artificial intelligence is eventually going to happen. And it's going to work. And it's going to be very effective. But right now, there's isn't there, there's just not enough data for us to draw the connection from design, from to building a molecule, all the way into the clinic. It's just not there. And it's not structured in... Um, there are a lot of companies that have silos of very good data that that can be used for rare disease um, in for certain things but not there's nothing where you can sit down right now draw a molecule on a screen and say, okay, is this going to be you know, here's my target, how do I design a drug for me? That's not going to happen and that's not going to happen for a while. but there are things that you can do right now and these are things like for example, predicting, uh, activity for RNA. If you want to, if you want to target a particular RNA and knock it down, there are ways to predict that the ability to do that and give you some level of confidence that you can do that. There are, if you have enough data, there's ways to predict things like liver tox. And that doesn't take a lot of data to do that, but you can start to get that point where you can do a design and say, okay, I'm going to weed out these molecules because there's a chance they could be liver toxic based on our models and then there's a you know and then you want to do things like well i want to predict whether or not the activity i'm having in the cells is actually going to show activity in a rodent model you know and then you can usually you can have enough data that there are companies that have enough data to do that level of prediction so you can start to tie these things together um, with these with these ai models And then eventually you'll have enough data where you're linking the clinical side to the early discovery side. Now, the one thing I'll say about the N of 1 and the rare disease, specifically the N of 1, is that the turnaround time for these drugs is on the order of a year to two years. So from discovery through to the clinic, it's pretty fast. And La Jolla Labs is working with, we're working with Tim Yu's group to build a database. um, And uh, we're going to work with, and hopefully with NLORM, to build a pre-competitive database. And then there's actually another group that's starting up in Europe. And I believe it's going to be at Oxford. I'm not sure. But this is another end of one group. And we're going to try to set up a pre-competitive base where we can share data. And ideally, uh, anonymize data that will allow us to build these models because we have to work together in these rare disease settings. But because the turnaround time is so quick, we're going to be able to have early discovery data, in vitro data, in vivo tox data, and clinical data all in one database, and it's going to accumulate pretty quickly. So there is the hope, and as that starts to build, we'll be able to build models pretty efficiently. So the vision is, I think it's there, it's just, it's gonna take time to get the data.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting to actually put, wrap your head around the the timestamp of it all, right? And that it would be meaningful to families. Yeah. I was also going to ask kind of who is doing it right in access to data. Um, And you sort of touched a little bit on that. And I'm very interested to continue to follow what you're building in that sense. What needs to be done by perhaps patient advocacy groups and patient families that could help, you know, make it more quick and efficient to uh, help others access our data?
1: Yeah. So the other part of this is structured data is difficult in putting it into a format that allows it to be accessible computationally and curated. So that's a that's a time consuming and costly enterprise. And there are actually companies that are set up that actually that, that do curation of this data. And then what they'll do is they'll sell it to pharmaceutical companies who have the money to buy it. So I think there's a company called Stripes. There are a couple other companies that basically just curate data of rare disease organizations, and then they, they'll they sell it to pharmaceutical companies. It might work for the pharmaceutical companies, but it's definitely, what it does is, it, it puts the, the data into a silo that they basically lose control of that data. But it's, it is structured. I mean, the one thing about having, uh, one thing about rare disease is that the ability to do clinical trials is expensive. So pharmaceutical companies are not, they're they're very resistant to doing it. If you can provide a lot of natural history data or a lot of sort of data that allows them to do a clinical trial and use that as their control group, then that drastically lowers the cost. And so being able to curate and organize that data within a foundation is huge because it allows it lowers the, the cost burden that the that a company may take on for doing a, a clinical program.
0: So yeah, I mean the work that most patient advocacy groups in rare disease are doing right now, where they're collecting their own natural history study and having their own yeah open source data stuff.
1: Yeah and and tr- and trying not to uh, lose control of that, which can happen.
0: <laughs> and by lose control of that, do you mean it getting sort of, into the wrong hands and then being sold off? Or what do you you mean by that?
1: Yeah, there there are several companies that are set up to basically build curated data sets and sell them back to pharmaceutical companies. And it's definitely in their business model to own that data and provide access to pharmaceutical companies for... And because it's so expensive to do a clinical trial, these, these data sets are very valuable. And so if somebody does a partnership with a company, they have to be very careful about the fact that it could potentially be uh, encumbered at that point as you know, no longer in their ability to, say, create another database for, for like an open source database, for example. It may not be something they can do if they have a relationship with these companies. So in a sense, they have to just be guarded in if they create a natural history study, and you want to ensure that, that that data is used in the best way going forward, then you should be careful about how you, the relationships you have with these, um, some of these curation companies.
0: So we need lawyers and language <laughs> yeah. from, from day one.
1: <laughs> right. It does help. Yeah. Yeah. As Lahoy Labs is, we're on the early. Dis- discovery side of things so we don't deal a lot with the clinical data except for the n of one stuff where we don't have that problem but I'm just saying from the foundation perspective it's um I can see uh th- th- this is an issue definitely
0: yeah it's definitely a conversation too that is I feel pretty talked about in our communities um, at least if you're really engaging and you're being active and you're learning from others who have perhaps been down that path or made mistakes or whatever. Um, I feel like there is sort of this camaraderie where people share their homework, right? Right. And really try to keep an eye out for each other because it only hurts all of us too when this happens to an advocacy group. Right. Yeah. So what are you most excited about in terms of advancing disease treatments or what you're doing or the end of one treatment model? Like what is sort of peaking like your nerdy brain these days?
1: <laughs> well, I'm really, I am really excited about the the use of machine learning and AI and the ability to really lower the, the barrier to entry to developing a therapeutic for rare disease. I think that, you know, the idea that we can, and we have to do this iteratively, you know, as I said before, it's not something that can happen from where we're going to capture everything from start to finish. And and I think that we're doing that at La Jolla Labs. I think we're providing basically strategies that are making it cost-effective to go after rare disease. and And I'm really excited about just basically taking, instead of, you know, going, you know, thinking about pharmaceutical companies as very large, monolithic uh, brick walls and thinking about it as basically a bunch of people who are emotionally invested in success who are driving this. And I just want to be the operating system, the enabler of that, and to sort of continue down that path. And I think we're headed in that direction. Yeah, that's something I'm I'm really excited about the use of you know the the deep integration of of modern statistical computing some of the platform chemistries like the antisense and siRNAs, um, the ability to automate a lot of things for example synthesis of the type of molecules that we have are actually very cheap to synthesize um, for some reason they're very expensive but we're working on that and eventually we're you know, La Jolla Labs will have a synthesis lab um, and will be able to provide this at what should be a reasonable cost. Um, so yeah, automation, machine learning, and, and just passion.
0: I love that perspective and vision so much, Jeff, really. We need more companies like this. Thank you for creating it and for helping to make it more accessible and affordable. And I really appreciate it. And I love just kind of your history of your career path so far. And I can tell that it is a passion and that the patients do come front and center. Uh, So thank you for that. Absolutely. I feel like I need to take a couple classes from you. Um, I don't know.
1: Anytime, <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> and if you ever, yeah, if you ever want to come to La Jolla Labs and and just kind of get the the lesson, we do. Uh, we actually do classes for our employees. So. <laughs> oh
0: my gosh! Yes, I'm coming to sit in. I've yeah. always wanted to go to the Mesa. Just kidding. I really have no idea what that is. I joke about it. Uh Okay, cool. All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. It was so nice to meet you. And I'm so excited about this work and really happy to introduce you to anyone who doesn't know you yet. I think it's going to be really exciting for some patient advocacy
1: groups. Well, thanks thanks for taking the time. And next time, I'll do a song.
0: Oh, he said it and it's recorded and I think that's legally binding. I don't Uh, know, but I think it is.
1: I'll do it. I'll do it. All right. Thank you so much, Jeff. All right. Thanks. Bye.
0: I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.
1: (laughs) I'll <laughs> <laughs>